0: Welcome to a new episode of Syscast. My name is Matthias Genjar, and today I'm joined by Seth Vargo from HashiCorp to discuss Vault and managing secrets in a variety of ways. Hi there, Seth. How are you?
1: Hey, Matthias. I'm good. Uh, Doing well over here in Pittsburgh. Uh, Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here today
0: likewise and nobody will notice that we did this intro twice because i forgot to hit record great <laughs> we're off to a good start um so seth you work at hashicorp it's a firm that i think most of the listeners have uh have definitely heard from because you do a lot of interesting open source projects that i'm uh, actually quite sure each and every one of us has used at some point um, could you introduce yourself what do you do at hashicorp and what's your day-to-day business like
1: Sure. Um, so I've been at HashiCorp about two years now. Uh, my background is in engineering, so I am an engineer by trade with the computer science degree and all. Um, I've touched about every open source project that we've ever worked on. Uh, so if you look at the Git log, you're bound to see my name in there. Um, more recently, as, as the company has grown, you know, at one point we were just you know two to three to five people, and now we're up over forty. Um, you know I've taken on a number of different roles and most recently my job is, is the head of education and the director of evangelism. So my job um, entitles running the entire training curriculum that we're building out in the, uh, this year in addition to speaking at conferences, doing things like podcasts and helping users understand our tools at a very deep technical level. Um, so I always like to describe evangelism as, as marketing that, that doesn't cost any money to the user. Um, so I do a lot of teaching people how to use our tools um, for free um, in the hopes that they'll adopt them.
0: I think that's about a dream job as you can have speaking at conferences, doing podcasts. Uh, sounds like a, a really fun job to do. <laughs> um, well, I asked you to, uh, to come on the show and talk about Vault. Um, Vault is probably easier to explain by you. Um, could you give us the five minute introduction? What is Vault?
1: Sure. So, Vault is HashiCorp's solution, a recommended solution, to secret management in the modern era. Um, So, Vault works at a number of levels. If you take a look at Vault's threat model on vaultproject.io, we clearly call out the problems that Vault is trying to solve. But what it really breaks down to are two isolated threat areas. The first is internal threats and then external threats. External threats are what we typically think about in secret management. You know, somebody sitting at the keyboard with, you know, typing lots of commands, trying to hack or decrypt the data. Internal threats are more like rogue employees or unauthorized access, the difference between authorization and authentication within an organization. So, you know, if somebody has access to the API credentials, for example, and then they leave the company. How do we make sure that they no longer have access to those credentials? Do we invalidate them? Do we generate new ones? Do we audit, et cetera? So Vault provides a new and innovative approach to secret management in that it treats secrets as uh, least values, meaning they have a TTL associated with them. So unlike a traditional secret management solution where you generate a credential, like a database credential, maybe it's a username and password to the database, you put that in the secret management solution and it's very static. The only way it gets updated is if an operator or a developer goes into the, uh, you know, the system itself generates a new username and password, updates the data, etc. There's uh, decentralized keys and very limited visibility into that operation. Vault's approach to that same task is to allow Vault to generate those credentials for you. So Vault actually generates Postgres usernames and passwords and returns them as a result. And those credentials have a TTL associated with them. So they're only valid for, let's just say 30 days. And then after 30 days, those credentials are revoked and the application or the operator or the developer has to go request new credentials from Vault. So this makes the leases enforceable. And if someone leaves the company, you can revoke those leases early. So even if it had a 30-day lease, we could revoke it at 10 days if that employee leaves the company and those credentials are no longer valid. So, Vault provides a centralized source for secret management, uh, all in one place, so we're not worried about static secrets living here and living there, instead everything is dynamic. And the dynamic nature makes Vault a highly scalable solution for large enterprises that have a ton of secrets with lots of different permissions, but it's also a simple enough tool that even a small two or three person company can adopt it and it can bring great value to the organization.
0: That sounds that sounds great. I think nowadays most of us as developers either um, store our credentials in a simple ini file that we commit in the repository, or we store it as environment variables, or it's something that we ma- manually. Um, keep up to date on our systems. It's not something that scales well, and as you mentioned, it's one of the first things that we stop doing. Um, Perhaps the first few uh, users that that leave the company will rotate the keys, but eventually that becomes a burden, a drag, people stop doing it. Um, I'm very sure that there are a lot of systems out there where developers have left the company but still have access if they wanted to. Um, So something like Vault would be a perfect solution for that. Managing secrets obviously implies some kind of password or authentication or private key that um, gives you access to that, that, you know, that data. Um, how does that work in Vault? Uh, could you describe the authentication and security mechanisms that Vault has?
1: Yeah, sure. So Vault, um, like most encryption systems, uses an encryption key under the system. So it, it has a symmetric encryption key. Um, That encryption key encrypts the data in the durable storage backend. So, where data is written, um, the most logical there is is disk, but Vault can also write to a database or it can write to uh, in-memory. And the encryption key is what's responsible for encrypting that data once it's sitting at rest on some type of durable storage. That encryption key is a static key. Um, Vault has commands that allow you to rotate that key uh, at any time, And it uses a key ring so that it can automatically upgrade over time as new data comes in and data is rewritten. That encryption key itself is actually encrypted by what we call the master key. And the master key never exists in Vault. Instead, the master key is decomposed into a number of shares. And a threshold of those shares must come together to regenerate the master key. And this is done via an algorithm, it's a computer science algorithm called Shamir secret sharing. And the analogy I always like to use here is if you had a physical key to a door, you know, a deadbolt or a door lock, and you cut that into five pieces and you gave five people a piece of that key, if somehow any three people could come together and put their pieces of the key together, you know, super glue them back together, that could unlock the door. That's actually how Shamir's secret sharing algorithm works. So what we do whenever we initialize a vault, the process of initialization generates a master key. That master key is then split into a threshold of keys that get distributed to a number of users in your organization. And then that master key never exists again. It only ever existed in memory. In order to decrypt the encryption key, we need the master key. And in order to get the master key, a threshold of users have to come together and enter their shard or their piece of that master key in order to regenerate it. And this is Shamir's secret sharing algorithm. In Vault, that shard, that piece of the key is what we call an unsealed key. So when a Vault is created and initialized, it comes up in what's called a sealed state. The sealed state means that no requests are served and the data in Vault is not Um, available. It's currently encrypted and we need to generate the master key so that we can decrypt the encryption key so that we can read and write the data. Only after a threshold of the key shares have been entered can we generate the master key and then that master key can decrypt the encryption key and vault can be operable. And this is the process known as unsealing. So if you've ever seen a movie where, you know, the president or the prime minister has to enter like the secret codes to disarm the nuclear missile and, you know, three people have to enter their code in order to disarm the missile, that's actually very similar to how vault internally works. And this is part of that internal threat that I talked about earlier. The Shamir secret sharing algorithm prevents one person from having complete reign over the system instead there's a system of checks and balances in place such that no one operator can go rogue without the other operators uh, in collusion or intervening
0: the president uh, comparison is a good one indeed Uh, the nuclear missiles requiring five or more keys Um, as as i recall the, the the amount of keys in, in or the amount of parts in which a key is distributed is something that's configurable when you first initialize vault. So if you would like a single key, the perhaps the most dangerous option, a single key to decrypt um, or allow access to the vault, that's also possible.
1: Yeah, that's true. The The number of keys and the threshold are both configurable values. So here the default is five and three. So it'll split into five parts and then three of those parts have to come together. Here at HashiCorp, we actually have about ten keys, but we also have a higher threshold. So there are ten people who have an unsealed key, and then I think five or six of them have to come together in order to unseal the vault. And that's really a business decision or an organizational decision about how you should split that. Um, you do want, you know, you want to have a high availability of key holders. Um, so that means if you have a lot of people who travel or are in different time zones, you're going to want to split those key holders up uh, across the organization. However, one thing that's really nice about Vault is that just because you're a key holder doesn't make you an administrator in the system. So for example, um, we could give our designer an unseal key. And our designer only needs to enter that unseal key once. And and he doesn't actually need access to the Vault at all. He just needs to be able to enter the unseal key. Um, so this isn't just a developer or an operator thing. You know, you could give an executive assistant an unseal key. You could give marketing team an unseal key. And they really just have to run one command to enter their unseal key, just as if they were unsealing a bank vault. All they have to do is insert their key. They don't have to understand the mechanics of the bank vault. So this allows you to distribute the keys more among more than just your engineering teams.
0: That's a nice separation of uh, of responsibilities, indeed. Um, so to, to put this really practical, the the moment you would um start a server or start Vault as a service. The very first time that you start it the um the seal has to be unsealed, meaning everyone who has a key um and is required should enter it. But once the service is up and running, then you go back to a, a more classic method of authentication and of providing um privileges to what you can can and cannot access.
1: Correct. So everything in Vault is policy and path based. So everything's an API server. The Vault CLI actually interacts with the JSON API directly. It doesn't have any special magic. And everything is a path, a URL in Vault. And the policies in Vault are tied to those paths. So you simply give somebody access to a path, and then they have access to the secrets that are contained on that particular path. The result there is that when you authenticate to Vault, you are assigned a policy, and that policy dictates what you can and cannot do in Vault. The way you authenticate to Vault is done a number of different ways because it's a pluggable system. So the most basic authentication is just by using username and password. The same way you would log into a website, you type in your username and password, you're given a token back, and that token, just like a cookie, is how you're identified moving through the system. However, we do have more complicated workflows that tend to scale at larger organizations, things like LDAP where your OU and CN define the policy that gets assigned to you. So anybody who's in LDAP who's a member of the developer's OU gets a certain privilege assigned to them by being part of that organization in LDAP. Similarly, we have GitHub authentication. So just like the OAuth flow in the browser, you can supply a GitHub API token during authentication to Vault, and Vault will be mapped to a series of teams on GitHub. So anybody who's a member of the developer's team on your GitHub organization gets a certain privilege attached to them or policy attached to them on the Vault server whenever they authenticate to the system.
0: OK. Uh, how do you define um, the, the root access, the administrators. Is that something that you do uh, the moment that you configure Vault for the first time? Is that something that you can add or, or redistribute later?
1: Uh, Yeah, so there's a couple different answers there. The first time you initialize the vault, vault is going to give you out the initial root token. This is kind of the the root user, the pseudo user, if you will, and it can be disabled after you've configured vault further. Usually what we see is that a a small number of people are given admin or root access um, to the vault via some policy. And then a number of other users are given developer access or operator access. It's possible to regenerate that root key if you lose it or if somebody leaves the company the same way that it's possible to regenerate those unseal keys that we talked about earlier. Um, And that process is actually very similar. It involves a threshold of the unseal keys coming together to regenerate a new root token. Uh, And that root token does have kind of unrestricted access within the system.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Um, You you touched on it a bit earlier, I think. vault has a storage backend it has to store the um the encrypted version of the passwords of the secrets of the api keys uh, what's that like is that something that you've written yourself is that an open source project uh you're relying on
1: um so everything in vault is open source um, and this is just part of vault's core So we have what's called a logical backend, um, or a logical storage backend, and that's how we refer to the durable storage. It's pluggable, so you have to implement a series of API calls. um, And then once you implement those, you can be a pluggable backend. Vault itself has support for the file system, Postgres, console, in-memory, and a few others um, that you can see on the website. And then we have some that are community-contributed as well. Um, this is just where Vault stores the data, uh, and it's really just the implementation of an interface.
0: And that data itself, is, should someone get access to it, is worthless because it's decrypted. Uh, there's no way to get that back without unsealing the Vault, and that requires the, the, the admins or the, the token bearers to unlock the Vault.
1: Right. The data is encrypted at rest, even while the vault is unsealed. So That means even if the vault is unsealed, if somebody were to gain access to the file system, they would just have encrypted data. They would have to do you know, some type of brute force operation or complex operation to try to decrypt that data, if it's even possible. And We do use the, the latest um, ciphers and algorithms available, um, so AES, um, CBC-256, um, for the majority of vaults' encryption.
0: Okay, that'll take a couple of years to hack. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You mentioned that, the the, the multiple backends. If you wanted to make Vaults highly available, because uh, at one point you're going to rely on Vault more and more to store your secrets and your your company uh, um, secret data, how would you make it highly available?
1: Sure, that's a great question. Um, And the high availability is tied directly to the storage backend. So Vault's high-available architecture is designed in a way that each Vault instance shares the same logical storage backend. So what that means is in order to have highly available Vault, you have to have a storage backend that supports leader election. So something like console or etcd are two examples that come to mind very quickly. The reason for that is, let's say you have three Vault servers. When you initialize the first Vault server, it's going to configure console to store your data. When you bring up a second vault server in the same cluster and you attach it to that storage backend, it no longer needs to be initialized because the folders and the setup are already there. Instead, that server immediately goes into standby mode because the backend supports leader election and says someone else is currently the leader, uh, and that's the vault that we initialized first. And then as we bring a third one on, that same process is repeated. We still have to bring the vault up, we still have to unseal it, but the moment it's unsealed, it goes into standby mode. Then, any requests that get made to that standby vault server get forwarded to the leader, and that's because the backend supports high availability. If our leader should lose election, maybe somebody pulls the plug, it has a a bug, something it falls, it crashes, whatever, then one of the two other servers will acquire that lock as part of the leader election algorithm, and they'll start servicing requests. And as you bring new vaults online, all you do is bring them up, unseal them, and they become part of the cluster if they're sharing the same storage backend.
0: And in order to access a, a highly available vault setup, since it's uh, in its core, it's an HTTPS REST API, I think, um, you could just place any kind of load balancer in front of it, or would you lose something like a uh, console to have, um, have that report to the active uh, vault node?
1: So there's really no advantage at this time for putting a load balancer in front of it because even if you load balance to a standby, the standby is going to forward that request to the leader. Currently, standbys cannot respond to any requests in Vault. This is an optimization that our team is looking at. So putting a like a load balancer like an ELB or HA proxy in front of it isn't going to help you out at this time. So it's best to either query console to say, you know, give me, um, give me the Vault server or just hit any Vault server, and they'll forward the request on to the leader if it's a standby.
0: When you say forward, am am I looking at uh, HTTP redirects to a new endpoint, or does that happen transparently? Um, You just connect to an IP, and that in itself will uh, activate or or connect to the active Vault instance?
1: Uh, No, it's not a tunnel. It's a redirect. So you're going to, to put it in nerdy terms, you're going to want to curl dash L.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Now you're making sense, Okay. (laughs) okay um everything involved is um, key value paired a uh, bit like memcached or redis as a comparison but well obviously uh, encrypted and secure um, can you recommend of a good naming scheme because uh, like a lot of things naming things is hard um should you include location data centers uh, project names what's what's a good naming scheme for your vault secrets
1: Sure. So um, data center, uh, vaults vault fill your domain is the data center. So it's similar to console um, in that you wouldn't want to namespace by data center. Instead, you would run a run <clears throat> one vault instance per data center, um, likely. It depends on your definition of data center, but you're probably going to want one vault cluster per data center. Um, in terms of naming things, there, there are no best practices here other than policies are tied to paths, so whenever you name things, if you want to restrict access to a particular path, you can put it in a subfolder by ending it with a slash. So, For example, if we write to the generic secret backend, which does behave very similar to Redis or Memcached in that it's just an encrypted key value store, what you write in gets written, encrypted, and when you read it out, it gets you know, decrypted and read back to you in plain text, If we put a secret at secret slash foo, that path is accessible to anybody who has access to secret slash foo. But we can also put a secret at um, secret slash foo slash bar, and then we can further restrict those paths so that only developers have access to the bar subfolder, but other people have access to foo and some other secrets that might be contained in foo. So the naming scheme is actually, I wouldn't focus on that. I always recommend that you start with your policies and say, these are the roles in my organization, developer, operator, designer, you know, marketing, accounting, et cetera. And here's the access that I want them to have. So if you look at your current solution, you might have, you know, 1Password or LastPass or sharing a text file via Dropbox and try to figure out who needs access to what and design the system really on paper and pencil or in a Google Drive and say like, these are the organization roles and this is the data they need access to. And then from there, it's all path based. So you say, okay, I'm going to put all of the accounting data in slash accounting, and then I can make a policy that says accounting has access to slash accounting, and they get access to that data.
0: Okay, that sounds like a very transparent system. Um, good, uh, good idea. I think to to approach this um, from the organization point of view. I think a lot of us would uh, more easily look at this as, say, I'm a developer. I have an application. I know x y and z are, um, are secrets that I would like to store we probably look at it a very, at a very development mindset uh, kind of way But this is more of a people and and logistic problem than a, than a technical one um, So I like that idea um, Does this mean that you can uh, also tell vaults that there's a difference between read write and read only access
1: Yes, definitely. Vault actually has, um, I want to say, five different capabilities, um, which is what we define the your ability to perform an operation. So you have read, which explicitly grants you read. You have write, which explicitly grants you write. And if you give somebody write access, they have only write access. So if I give you write, you cannot read. I have to explicitly give you both read and write capabilities in order for you to be able to perform both a read and a write. We also have capabilities for update, capabilities for list, and then delete. Um, So they actually map to HTTP verbs. So get, G-E-T, corresponds to read, Um, put and post both correspond to create and update, delete corresponds to the HTTP verb delete, and list corresponds to the HTTP verb list. So there's a mapping there, and as we said before, it isn't HTTP or HTTPS API, actually maps directly to the HTTP verbs that are used to make those requests. And everything is denied by default. So if I create a policy that is effectively an empty file, and I assign that to you, you have no access in the system. Um, You can't perform anything because we didn't assign you any paths.
0: Okay. Yeah, I I think most of those permission schemes I can uh, I can relate to, but the the list one is to me a bit odd. When would you do use uh, when would you give someone or something list access?
1: Yeah, so list is actually something new in Vault 0.5. It allows you to traverse a folder or a subfolder uh to include the list of things that you have access to based on your policy. And this is especially useful in the generic secret backend where you may have a series of folders and subfolders. And you just want to effectively LS or DIR if you're on Windows. And you want to see what are all of the folders in this folder or what are all of the secret names in this folder. The list operation is never going to return the secret values. That's actually going to require a separate HTTP call, the read operation. So it's possible to give somebody list operations, uh, list capabilities, without giving them read capability. And that would let them see that there are secrets there, but they wouldn't be able to read the values. And a, a thing here might be like a UI, where you want to display all of the secrets, but then you want to prompt for authentication once the user clicks on the secret name so that you can show them the data.
0: OK, cool. Indeed. Um, vault secrets, uh, everything eventually ties back to privileges, um, which uh, if uh, we put on the, the, the CIO hat, um, probably means someone using Vault will look at auditing. Is there a way that you can see who accessed what and who tried to access something but was denied access? Uh, Is there auditing at work?
1: Yeah, so out of the box, nothing is audited in Vault because audit backends require configuration. There are two configurable audit backends, file, which logs to the file system, and syslog, which logs to syslog or rsyslog. The audit backends can be enabled using the audit enable command on the CLI, and they only have to be done once, even in a highly available environment. Every single request and response, remember it's just an HTTP API server, is logged in Vault. So you get in JSON, you will see the request payload and the response payload, obviously the The first thing that probably comes to mind for a security-conscious user is, wait, doesn't the audit log include all of my secrets, right? If it includes the response and the request object, that might include the secret data. Vault actually scrubs the audit log and performs an HMAC SHA on all of the secrets that are both requested and returned from the API. And this is incredibly important because what it means is that um, you can ask Vault to generate the HMAC for a secret if you know it, and then grep the audit logs or search the audit logs for that particular value, but they're not reversible. So for example, if I want to search the audit logs for a particular Postgres username and password, I can give Vault the plain text username and password and ask it to generate the HMAC SHA for the audit log. And then I can grep the audit log for that HMAC SHA and see any and all operations that involve that particular username and password.
0: You guys really thought this through. <laughs> it's a nice one. Um makes sense from that point of view too yeah can everyone see those access logs by default or is that also something that's policy defined that you can limit
1: so the audit logs are not stored in vault um, no those are op-
0: syslogs right you mentioned it
1: so it is up to the organization to do that i mean you could if you're piping them to the file system you know anybody with ssh access and permission to see those folders obviously has the ability to see those audit logs that being said, the audit logs don't actually contain any sensitive information. Um, you know, I, I say this very lightly, but there's nothing that would prevent you from putting the audit logs in a GitHub GIST and putting them publicly. They don't contain any sensitive information that would be damaging to an organization. Um, I don't recommend that. That's definitely not a best practice for sure. But there's nothing that would be harmful there. Um, so I think it's up to the organization itself to secure those audit logs. One thing you can do is you can use Vault's transit backend to feed the audit logs through the transit backend, which operates as kind of as encryption as a service. It'll encrypt the JSON um, audit logs and then write them out. You could write them back out to disk as encrypted files. And then whenever you want to decrypt them, you post back to the transit endpoint with the encrypted value and get the plain text back. So, that could be part of maybe your log rotate script. Is, you know, once the audit log fills up on disk, um, you pipe it to the transit backend and then write out the encrypted file to disk. And then, whenever you want to recover it later, you pipe it back into the transit backend and get the plain text value out. That does make things like grepping and searching a little bit harder. Um, but if that's something you're interested in, um, you know you might want to look at syslog or potentially a solution like splunk that would allow you to do some more advanced querying or an elk stack that would allow you to do more advanced querying on uh, those logs
0: yes exactly yeah the, the use case that you just mentioned is really interesting that means vault can also be used as something like an intermediary where um, anyone who has an application that needs to store passwords can use Vault to have them be encrypted but not necessarily stored in Vault.
1: Yeah. I have a really um, detailed blog post that talks about Atlas, which is HashiCorp's commercial product, the the enterprise tooling, and how we use Vault in Atlas to encrypt data. So Atlas is written in uh, Ruby on Rails, and it has a a database that backs it. And part of Atlas is you have to give us your cloud credentials because we run Terraform for you. So you have to give us your AWS keys, your Google keys, your DigitalOcean API keys, and that's very scary for some people. So what we do is we use Vault's transit backend such that in the database, we never store the plain text values. Instead, we only store the obfuscated values, or sorry, the encrypted values that come from Vault uh, in the database. And then whenever we need the plain text values back, we use a permission-based system, Vault's policies, and we get the plain text values back, but they're revocable at any time. And that whole process is audited.
0: that's a nice one um that that ties in with one of the things i wanted to ask you is what are the use cases that you see vault being used in you you, you're using it yourself in atlas are there other um, big projects you know that use vault or interesting use cases
1: yes but i can't talk about them (laughs) NDAs. (laughs) Uh, it's not really ndas i mean some of them are but vault is security in general is one of those tools where half the battle is identifying the software used and a lot of these companies that are very security conscious just don't want to admit that they're using the tool simply because by saying publicly, you know, we use Vault, that immediately gives a skilled attacker an attack vector and they can start going through Vault's code base, trying to find vulnerabilities, um, you know, trying to attack that specific technology. Whereas this is one of those cases where less is more. One thing I will say is that we've had, we have had Vault's code base audited twice by an independent um Security firm and um, we have fixed all of the issues they have found. They've also been very very minimal issues um, More denial of service attacks as opposed to security related issues and like linking leaking passwords um, And we fixed all of those issues in a very timely manner and uh, the current version of Vault uh, Pretty much passed with flying colors on the security audit Are oh, you
0: relying on it on yourself? So uh, you have to have faith in your own tool um, That sounds good too I'm a sysadmin by trade, so I do most of my work in config management tools like Chef or Puppet or Ansible. Um, I think I I read your post um, on the Vault project blog too about uh, integrating Vault with Chef. Um, Could you describe the the use cases that you can have with with a config management tool? How could you use Vault to let that store your credentials? How could that work?
1: Sure. Um, I go into detail about this, like you said, in the blog post with lots of code snippets um, as related to Chef. Um, but the, the idea is that Vault uses this TTL-based um, short-lived leases, as, as I talked about earlier. And configuration management is generally run either once at boot time or on some type of service interval, maybe every 30 minutes or every hour. And the problem is that push versus pull model doesn't work together very well. So if you think about Chef, because um, something I'm personally familiar with, you, know, you run Chef every 30 minutes as a cron job or as a service. But if you have a secret that expires every five minutes, you can't rely on Chef to renew that secret because the secret will expire before Chef has a chance to come in and renew it. And this is where we make a number of open source tools, um, console template and mconsole, console, which combined with config management create really powerful application deployments. So instead of having Chef retrieve secrets from like encrypted data bags or um, communicating directly with Vault, Chef instead installs one of these tools. These tools run as runtime tools. They operate as services on the system, constantly in communication with Vault. They speak directly to Vault and Vault's latest APIs, and they manage the application lifecycle for you. So, from like the auditing and everything, uh, you you would use configuration management to write the files and the tooling that would then interact with Vault moving forward. Does that make sense?
0: It does. It's it's um, sort of a duplicate config management system. Well, duplicates sound too negative, but you know, you use your chefs, your puppet um, to manage the console templates, which in turn will do its configuration with Vault. And um, I think in return, it will write on disk some kind of username, password, or whatever secrets that was store, stored in Vault. Is that right?
1: Yeah, and then from there, your application can pick up that file or you know your service can read that file or consume that file. Um, And similarly with env console, except instead of writing to a file, it writes to an environment variable. Okay,
0: which was also one of the questions I was thinking about is, uh, let's say you have a Ruby or a PHP application. Um, The easiest way for that that application to get its credentials would be something like a console template that has written an INI or a YAML file that is parsed by the application. Um, At the same time, Vault is sort of like, it is an api um, you could essentially have the application query its um, its secrets in real time that's something i'm guessing is not really recommended by performance or is that doable
1: um so it's doable the the thing i caution here is the closer you get to integrating with vault the further you get away from customization so the closer you are to vault the more control you have over the flow you know when secrets change. What do I want to do? Do I want to drain database connections, etc.? However, the fir- the closer you are to Vault, the harder development becomes, because if you directly integrate into your application now, all your developers have to run a Vault server to work on the application locally, and all of a sudden you have to run ten services just so you can edit one HTML file, and that's not a really good development experience. The counter to that is if you use a tool like Console Template you get a config file and that config file is managed kind of out of band of the process. So the developers don't need to be aware of console template or vault at all. Instead, they know that their data is gonna come from a config file and that that config file will have a particular format and that they pull their database credential from this particular value. And then if we take a step down even further, when we talk about security, generally people recommend environment variables because writing things to disk is generally regarded as less secure. What EnvConsole is going to do is, EnvConsole is going to pull that data from Vault, never write it to disk. Instead, it'll spawn a subprocess and inject environment variables into that subprocess, and that subprocess can be your application. So, in this case, developers only need to set one or two environment variables, and they can get up and running. And those environment variables don't have to be related to Vault, or they can have sane defaults such that if they're not set, they fall back to some developer credentials. And this makes the process really easy and follows one of the modern best practices of you know storing secrets in the environment instead of writing them to disk.
0: Okay, indeed. Uh, one of those um, dangers uh, is uh, I, I'm from a PHP back uh, background. There are a lot of tools, and I'm sure that there are the same in Ruby or Node um, that allow you to sort of print out a debug info. One of the first things those outputs do is also output, of course, environment variables. Um, not to say that you should never, of course, uh, output those in production, but that's, I think one of the downsides of potentially using environment variables, those could leak out in ways that are perhaps not very transparent to the user. Um, so it's one of those gotchas to keep in mind when developing anything.
1: Um, Yeah, definitely, definitely something to keep in mind. You also, um, you know, you only want to inject secrets into the environment that are actually used by the application on that note. So, you know, you might have a million secrets in Vault. And that doesn't mean you need to put all million of them on the, the machine. Instead, you should only request the secrets that are actually in use by that application. So you know, if something like that does happen, where you accidentally forget to turn debug off, and somebody gets a production dump, um, that you've only leaked a subset of secrets, as opposed to everything. And, and with Vault, luckily, you can revoke and regenerate those secrets really quickly. And then combine that with the audit log, you can see if those secrets were leaked and are being used. Um, but when you revoke a secret in Vault, it actually revokes the secret in the underlying system. So those credentials are no longer valid.
0: I think that that's definitely one worth um, pointing out. Uh, the, the 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 thing that you mentioned that it's um, revoking secrets in the underlying system, that's uh, according to the documentation because I haven't used Vault yet. So this is highly theoretical for me. Um, let's say you're using a MySQL or a PostgreSQL. Uh, in Vault, there are root credentials to manage MySQL and PostgreSQL. And you could have Vault generate a new username, a new password on its own, and expire that from the, the the database system on its own. And neither the developer nor the sysadmin even know which credentials are being used to communicate to the database. Uh, that's that's an insane use case, I think. It's it's a really powerful one that um, sort of uh, ma- manages to get away with um, how a sysadmin would give the credentials to a developer.
1: Yeah, and you can have an application request those credentials, meaning a human never actually sees what those credentials are, um, and they only exist in memory for short periods of time. The other thing I do want to point out there, because I think it's one of the coolest pieces of Vault, is that where possible, Vault actually uses the system's underlying functionality to expire those secrets as well. So In Postgres, when you create a user, there's a clause you can pass called valid until, and that accepts a timestamp. And in Vault, what you can do is, whenever you create the user, Vault will tell Postgres that this user is valid until a certain date, and that date corresponds to Vault's lease. Then, if a skilled attacker or anything takes Vault offline, even if Vault is unable to make the SQL call to revoke those credentials, the underlying system, Postgres in this case, will revoke those credentials automatically. So we do our best to make sure that the system is highly distributed and highly available. But then we also rely on the underlying systems themselves to kind of double check our work.
0: Are there a lot of services that support that?
1: Um, not as many as you would like. Um, we've, re- we've requested it a few times. The one that we really would like to see added is Amazon's IAM credentials. There's currently no way to say that a credential expires in the future, and that would be really useful. That's, that's a thing that has been requested outside of Vault's community. Um, you know, Vault will make the API call to revoke a credential after the TTL, but it's something that you know we would like to see those credentials auto-expire from from Amazon um, in the future. Okay, um,
0: a practical question then. Uh, if you're uh, an organization that's working on a single large project that you want to put out, it probably makes sense to have one or multiple, for redundancy reasons, um, vault instances running to manage that application. Um, let's say you are a web development shop and you hope you manage ten very large projects. Would you run them all in the same vault instance, or would you have um, a single vault instance per project that you manage for your clients?
1: Um. I think that's difficult. I, it depends on the separation of concerns. There, I, you know, depending on the clients, I would say you would run a vault cluster for each application if they're truly separate isolations. You know, I view it as if this application, one client's application, should never have any communication with another client's application. Then uh, I consider those to be separate data centers, and therefore should have their own clusters, their own networking, their own everything. Um, you know, I understand that in, you know, if you're running a VPC, for example, um, that might not be an ideal scenario. So I would run you know, potentially a namespaced vault server. Again, everything's path-based, so you can put things in namespaces uh, and then provide access just to that particular namespace. The same way that you know, in MySQL, you can say that this user has access to these databases. You could say that this application has access to these paths, and you could restrict data that way.
0: So if you think about a naming scheme um, ahead of time and with sufficient thought, um, a single Vault instance would be perfect and secure for managing multiple projects.
1: Yeah, for sure. And okay. you know, when, when you're thinking about naming, you know, I find it helpful to actually play with the service. And one thing we really tried to do in Vault was make it very user-friendly. Um, so you can go ahead now, go to vaultproject.io, download the tool, Um, And when you run Vault server dev which is short for development, you'll get a fully unsealed, ready-to-go vault server on your local laptop with instructions on how to use it. So out of the box, it works. It's not production-ready. Obviously, it's development mode. But it'll give you a really great interface where you can play with it, try things out, break things. And when you're done, you just close the vault server and it dies because it's an in-memory server and um, it never writes anything to disk.
0: That's a great way to get started, um, speaking of which, the, the your website vaultproject.io has an, an interactive um, in-browser shell, if you would like to call it like that. Um, found, I found that to be really interesting to just get a hang of the project, the the command line, um, what you can do. Obviously, it's limited, um, but it gives you a really nice feeling of what Vault is and its possibilities. That's a really nice move to put it there.
1: Yeah, it's all, it's pretty cool. And then each time you spin up that tutorial, you actually do get a dedicated Vault instance. So, uh, and we tear it down after a certain amount of time.
0: That's cool. Um, I had a couple of more questions, but I, so, somehow they uh, they just popped out of my head. Um, is there anything else you would like to plug? Are there cool ideas uh, with Vault that that we're missing out on that we should know about?
1: Um. <clears throat> I mean the, the surface area on Vault is is huge. Um, it, it's really hard to discuss everything in you know twenty or thirty minutes. Um, you know we do uh, we do cover a lot of it on our website uh, which, as you said before is VaultProject.io. There are both examples and then the API documentation there. Um, there are a number of client libraries. I don't think we've discussed that. So it is an HTTP API. Um, So we do have um, Node, Ruby, um, Golang, Rails, um, Java, uh, client libraries that do allow application-level integration. Or if you want to build your own little command line tool or own little utility, there's probably a package uh, of your choosing. And if there's not, you can use your your native language's interaction with HTTP uh, and HTTPS to make calls to the Vault server.
0: So plenty of tools to integrate into your application. even though as you mentioned before it may not be the best case um to do but that obviously depends on the environment and uh, the current situation yeah definitely okay i think i've got a lot of content to uh to plug in the show notes as well so if anyone has any more questions about vault um, or how it works um, there's a lot of documentation on the site and i'll include all of those links into the show notes um one last question i i i think you mentioned it briefly but i not quite sure if I fully understood it. So the, the moment that you um, you start a vault instance or service, you're asked to, um, to initialize it and to create the seal that would allow you to unseal it, those key pairs that you mentioned. Um, you mentioned that they, they could be changed as well. How does that process work internally? Does that's, that's time-consuming to rehash everything? Or how would that work?
1: Um, no, it's an online operation, and it works just like the unsealing process. It's called rekeying. So it requires a threshold of unsealed keys to come together, just like unsealing the vault. And um, there's a nonce value that's provided. And then once the number of uh, key holders have entered their unsealed key, a new um, group of unsealed keys are generated that can be distributed. And you can change the threshold and the number of keys during that time.
0: Okay, cool one. Uh, Because at the moment you started, you you, um, sort of unlock the vault, uh, which allows you to lock it again with a different set of keys. Right. Okay, makes sense. Great. Um, I'm all caught up. Um, Seth, I'd like to thank you a lot for this very interesting introduction. I knew nothing about Vault coming in besides uh, looking a bit at your documentation Um, coming out of it. I think Vault is a really interesting project to to look at um, for anything that's secret related. Um, So once again, thank you very much for your time. If people would like to find you online, how could they get in touch with you?
1: Uh, so my Twitter handle is just my full name, so S E T H V A R G O, um, and you can find me on the internet pretty much everywhere under my my first and last name. Uh, I will be at HashiConf EU uh, next month. There will be a number of Vault talks, and there is a Vault training as well. Um, you know, myself and the principal engineers who work on Vault will be there uh, if you have any questions. And then we also have our conference in the United States in September in Napa, California. Where we'll be doing some vault workshops and uh lots of talks about vault and, and security management you know particularly around containers and in the modern era so if that's something you're interested in you know please let us know
0: that's cool you, you've got a lot of traveling ahead of you that's clear a part of being an evangelist life i'm assuming <laughs> yes okay. okay seth thanks again uh take care and if uh if you're interested uh, there are a lot of interesting HashiCorp project products um Vagrant among a console. If you ever have more time, I'd love to discuss them with you.
1: Yeah, sounds great.
0: Okay, take care, Seth. Bye. Thank you.
1: Bye bye.